This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm Ruth Reeder, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. As part of our continuing coverage of the Innovation Festival, today we're bringing you highlights from some panels that delved into social good, activism, and justice. While this year has further exposed the deep-seated inequality and racism in our country, it's also shown how people have banded together to bring about change. Fighting voter suppression, ending mass incarceration, and capturing the diversity of the Black experience in film and television are all ways these panelists are building a more just society. Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, producer, and actress Janelle Monet sat down with Fast Company culture reporter Casey Ifaini to discuss how busy 2020 has been for her as an actor. She starred in season two of Homecoming, had a leading role in Antebellum, and as Dorothy Pittman Hughes in The Glorias. Casey kicks it off by wondering how she chooses certain characters to play. When you think about your body of work as an actor, what through line emerges for you? Like, what's that connective tissue in the roles that you decide to take? Well, being being someone who lives outside of the binary in terms of gender, I always want to stand with women. I always want to stand with Black women and highlight their voices. And I think that I've been able to play some very strong Black women on screen from Teresa, which was my first role in, in Moonlight, you know, to Mary Jackson at NASA and Hidden Figures and, you know, to, to Homecoming, um, my role as Jackie, uh, and, and even up until most recently, my role as Veronica Henley. And that through line, I think, is showing our spectrum, showing the spectrum of Black women and what we can be and, and who Black women are, you know, from the ghettos to NASA to, you know, being um, thought leaders in the community whose voices are constantly being silenced and what that looks like to be Black women leading the revolution, what that looks like to be a Black woman leading the revolution like a Veronica Henley, who is a threat to white supremacy, a threat to patriarchy, what it's like to be a Black woman carrying the burden of dismantling white supremacy every single day. Globally, uh, I think I want people to to understand just how powerful and how incredible Black women have been over the centuries. Earlier this year, Janelle told Casey she wasn't focusing on music because it was too deeply connected to her reality before the coronavirus pandemic hit. But then she released Turntables. Casey asks her what changed. I watched the documentary, All In, The Fight for Democracy, and I remember when Stacey Abrams was robbed of, of the election in Atlanta. I voted for her and Brian Kemp stole that election. And if you're not familiar with that case, Brian Kemp is now governor in Georgia. And he, during the election running against Stacey Abrams, he was also the secretary of state. So that meant that he's over the elections. He's seeing all of the people who are voting. He's, he's, he's stopping people from voting and also running for governor. That's already a conflict of interest. So they've done so much research that points to him stealing the election from Stacey Abrams. And I'm, I was still infuriated by it. And I watched the documentary, which really does go through the past and present and how we got here, how we have been told that 
you know, this is in our country and how we have been programmed and believing that we don't have the power, that our vote will never work for us. But the reason that they are trying to suppress our vote, and we see it with what Donald Trump is doing with the, the post office, we see it, you know, I've been gerrymandered before. We see the long lines. We see all the obstacles that they're putting us through as black folks to vote. Why do you think that's the case? And so this particular documentary goes through the origins of that. Who could vote? When voting first became a reality for this country, only like young white slave owners could vote. Women couldn't vote, black folks couldn't vote. So what ended up happening was, you know, over the years, women got a chance to vote. Black folks got a chance to vote, but they said, you know what? We know that you won't vote for our best interest because our interest is to dominate. Our interest is to stay in power. Our interest is, is to be supreme, to withhold the establishment of white supremacy. And they put us through all these obstacles. So once I saw that, I was like, you know what? I have to give energy because this is gonna be a long fight. This is gonna be a, wrong, a long road and whatever energy I can contribute to those who are on the front lines, like Stacey Abrams, like everyone a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, like everyone who, who, who's showing up to make sure that on the local, during local elections, people are coming out. People are really fighting to make sure that marginalized voices are heard. You need energy. And because we're in the middle of a revolution, what is a revolution without a song? What is a song without a revolution? And yeah, this was just my way of, of giving energy to the movement and the revolution that we're in. Casey also chats with Emmy winner Lena Waithe about what she thinks Hollywood should be doing to become more inclusive. She also describes how she draws from her personal experiences as a Black gay woman in her work. In a speech she gave at an Essence Black Women in Hollywood event, Lena said being born gay, Black, and female is not a revolutionary act. Being proud to be gay, Black, and female is. Casey is curious how that sentiment translates into her show, Twenties, since it's loosely based on her ascension in Hollywood. I think Twenties is such an example of being yourself so authentically that people can't look away. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's so, there's so many pieces of me in it. Um, obviously, it's not exactly like me, but because it can't be because she's in a modern day world. You know, there was a second where I wanted to maybe do it. And, and push it back to 2006, um, and 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 you live you relive through Obama being president and all the things that happened, uh, you know, while I was coming up because it was slightly different. Even though people don't like to think about it, but when I moved out to Los Angeles, like you said, in 2006, it was very different. It was still different. You know, we didn't. Issa Rae wasn't on television yet. Donald Glover didn't have a TV show. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't as a, you know, I hadn't gotten a chance to, to make Dear White People with Justin. Get Out didn't exist. There, there, it was a, it was, Hollywood was still in a space of, okay, black stuff can go over here. Okay. I mean, it, it almost feels like a world away. Yeah. And so that's why sometimes when people judge or, or, or talk about things from five, sometimes even 10 years ago, I'm like, guys, it was a completely different world. And even though that may seem like a short period of time ago. So for me, I think the show celebrates my journey thus far. Uh, but what it also does is it, it shows people that, you know, a masculine presenting lesbian woman can be, you know, funny and silly and messy and, you know, ambitious. 
and have two straight uh, best friends and be crushing on her straightish boss. And it, it just sort of shows a very complicated character, but who's still very light and airy. You know, it, it, it's not, I may destroy you. And, um, but it's also not insecure. And I think that's what's so unique about it. Hattie is her own thing. And I think what people can take away from the show is that everybody has a dream, whether they want to chase it, suppress it, or embrace it. Earlier this year, Lena wrote a column in Variety magazine calling for financial repercussions on Hollywood studios that don't meet inclusion standards. She wrote that the only color Hollywood cares about is green, suggesting that fines could have a bigger impact on change. Casey wanted to know how feasible she thought this could be in becoming an actual rule in Hollywood. Well, I think the Academy has taken a, a definitely a leap forward in that you have to meet a certain level of inclusivity to be considered for Best Picture, which is also what Hollywood cares about. Green and trophies. So a lot, a lot, of, folks are, yeah, a lot of folks aren't that happy about that. I'm, I'm sure this will continue to be a conversation uh, moving forward. But to me, it's definitely a step in the right direction because Best Picture means a lot in this <laughs> in Hollywood. And um, Winning know, an Emmy means a lot. I mean, like, yeah, you, know. No, you know, exactly. I think I think those two academies, you know, have a lot of influence on, on the industry and, and, and where people stand. And so I think it's going to be a great step forward. But I also think that it's really going to really come down to studios because studios are really the banks. Like yeah. you see a studio, um, Netflix is, is its own in-house studio. So they, they, all these streamers often pay for them. Like Amazon, like we don't have a, oh, well, actually, no, we do have a studio on them. But oftentimes these streamers don't need a studio. They're the ones doing it. And so it's kind of weird for them to find themselves for not doing the right thing. But the great thing is there's a, a huge pressure now. That very few shows want to not have any black or brown or queer people involved because you look like something out of the the Stone Ages. And so, but I think a big thing to me is we don't just want to have representation in front of the camera, but you want to have representation behind it as well um, in terms of the crew, in terms of uh, your 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 set, and also the writers' room. But I really think to me that if you could be fined because money is a big deal, like they a lot of times with. Um, these writing fellowships, they'll give, they'll give you a writer for free. And so then for a season, and then the next season, the writer's gone, not because they didn't do a good job, but because, well, now you costing me money. So to me, imagine if they flipped that and said, if you don't have a writer in there, you will be fined. <laughs> so, and it'll come out of your budget. And I just think it's really about flipping the narrative, really. Um, and, and again, like I said, it's like, you know, people, they didn't want, people wanted segregation to stick around. You know, and even and even when it was lifted, like there was there was unrest. I mean, people there were sit-ins to, to ensure that people, literally, white people were yanking black people out of off of a stool in Woolworths because they did not want to step into the future. And so I feel like that's what it's going to look like in Hollywood. You know, and so it's like you need to there just there just needs to be some repercussions repercussions. Otherwise the status quo will, will continue to exist. But the good news is no one wants to be shamed. No one wants to be embarrassed. Uh, some conglomerates don't care. There's a couple that are big enough where it doesn't matter how much people rage against the machine. Uh, but I do think that the, there are people walking inside the machine and dismantling it from inside. Mm. I think I think um, with some of those bigger ones, that's, that's the way it's going to have to happen. They're going to have to build relationships with people 
um, particularly black people, uh, where black people say like, this will not stand if you want me to work for you. And I know I'm doing that a lot of the places I'm at. And the, the great thing is a lot of these places that I'm working with, they're like, yeah, we want to change and they want to know how. And uh, I don't mind uh, engaging in those very honest conversations. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. When George Floyd was killed this past spring, it sparked a rallying cry around the country and reignited a social movement. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors joined San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, Democratic nominee for New York's 16th Congressional District Jamal Bowman, and Gina Clinton-Johnson, Executive Director of SE Justice Group, to discuss a range of solutions for criminal justice reform. Patrice starts by explaining why she believes defunding the police is necessary. This is a conversation about divestment and investment. And so we want to divest out of policing, out of incarceration, out of court systems and surveillance. And we want to invest into people being able to not just survive, but thrive. And that looks like being able to have access to not just basic necessities, but the necessities that help you be a full human being in this society. Jamal Bowman has previously suggested that revenue for this kind of investment could come from a marijuana tax. Fast Company staff writer Talib Visram asks whether or not he still supports that idea. Yeah, absolutely. Marijuana should be legalized uh, at a federal level across the country. And the revenue generated from marijuana sales should be reinvested in communities that have been historically neglected. And the records of those who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated due to marijuana possession or sales uh, should be expunged. That's without question. Uh, Back to your original question about uh, defunding the police, as Patrice mentioned, it's about reinvesting in the areas that truly help us to feel safe and secure. Police have never made me feel safe in my life. When I was 11 year old, the the police beat the crap out of me just for being a boisterous young man. I was not charged with a crime. I I was sent home with my mom and there was no recourse for us. So I've never felt safe around the police. I remember being a young kid and watching the police beat the crap out of Rodney King uh, on camera. And I watched those police be acquitted of any crime. Uh, So we have to really rethink public safety. You know, as a middle school principal, it was easier for me to suspend a kid and contact the police to get them out of our school, which we never did, by the way, than it was for me to call someone to provide the mental health services that our kids needed. That's a problem. So when we talk about reinvesting, uh, to echo Patricia's point, mental health services, food security, housing security, how about jobs? we give people jobs and access to job training programs, I guarantee you crime will go way down in our communities. Inmates in overpopulated prisons are particularly at risk of contracting COVID-19. Talib asked DA Bodine about how he's trying to reduce the number of people in prisons during the pandemic in San Francisco. And let me just say that I ran for district attorney on a platform committed to ending mass incarceration for lots of good reasons, because of the ways in which it fails to heal or support crime victims, because of how it fails to rehabilitate people who've caused harm in their community, 
because of the ways in which it wastes tax dollars and actually undermines public safety for all of us. What I didn't appreciate as fully as I think we all do today is how mass incarceration is also a very grave threat to public health. And COVID-19 has made that crystal clear. I listened to public health experts who run our jail in a way that I wish federal officials had paid attention to public health experts at the outset of this crisis. The doctor in charge of San Francisco's county jail said early and clearly that we had to drastically reduce the number of people in our jail in order to prevent the kinds of outbreaks that we later saw in Marion Prison in Ohio, in Cook County Jail in Chicago, in Rikers Island in New York, and in San Quentin Prison right near my hometown in the Bay Area. Those outbreaks and those deaths were preventable but it took political courage and it took creativity in reducing our jail population. I'm proud to say that between the time I took office in January and the peak of the epidemic, we were able to reduce our jail population by approximately 40%. And we did so without jeopardizing public safety. In fact, crime rates in San Francisco compared to last year are down more than 20%, even though we've cut the jail population. Now, the fear mongers would tell you, if you release people from jail, crime rates gonna go up. And instead we saw the opposite in San Francisco. And the reason is we paid attention to who was actually in jail and why. We looked at every single individual and we questioned, does this promote public safety? Is there some better, more humane, more effective alternative that can allow us to seek justice while also respecting our constitution's commitment to liberty and to the presumption of innocence. And we found people, I am sorry to say, who never should have been in jail in the first place. We found a young woman, for example, with no criminal record, serving time on a misdemeanor conviction with a high risk pregnancy. Why was she in jail in the first place? We found a woman, an elderly African-American woman with severe mental illness who had already served more time than anyone ever would have asked her for what she was accused of doing. And the only reason she was in jail was because the Department of Public Health didn't have a appropriate medical facility for her to receive treatment in. We were using the jail as a homeless shelter for this woman who needed mental health services. It's a disgrace and it's happening all across the country. COVID-19 has forced us at the local level to pay close attention to who's in jail and why and we'd better pay attention to the lessons we learned when this crisis is over. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more highlights from the festival. But if you want to tune in to the full schedule of events, check out events.fastcompany.com and click on buy tickets. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ruth Reader.